Welcome to City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coahforesthills.org. Uh, today, we are starting a new six-week series in the book of Acts. We cannot cover the entire book of Acts in six weeks. That would be a lot. Uh, but this is we're going to be kind of diving into what the church is and really looking at the type of church that we want to be as City on a Hill. So we're going to be looking at some descriptors of the church in the book of Acts. Uh, and this is a great time to check us out if you're new. So if you're, if you're new to City on a Hill, you've been around just a little while, and you want to know what kind of church we are, how you can be a part of this church, uh, this is a really good time to kind of capture the vision of who we are. Uh, But even if you've been here a while, sometimes you need a reminder that the main thing is the main thing. That's why we talk about our values every week. We talk about gospel, community, mission, because it's easy for us to drift away from the main thing, which is making much of Jesus. Uh, You know, it's kind of like when you go shopping. There are two types of people who go kind of go grocery shopping. There's really three with Instacart. We don't leave the house anymore. But if you go to the grocery store, there are two types of people. There are the people who can go to the grocery store without a list. They can go there without a list. They have their meal plan in their head. They're putting things together and they just see how all this works. I am not that person. I'm the other person. I'm the person that if I have three items, I need a list. I need to go because if not, I'm coming back with like Chewy Chips Ahoy, a bunch of bananas and AAA batteries. That's what I'm coming home with. I'm not sure why those three, but those are high on the list for me. Um, We need to be reminded because we forget. We forget so often why we exist. And so the book of Acts was written to describe the acts of the apostles, what they did to establish the early church, but it also stands as a reminder for us as the church in 2023 of what the main thing is. What is the main thing we are longing after as God's people? And so Acts is the second part of a two-part series uh, from Luke. Uh, Luke, if you've seen the Gospel of Luke, uh, not the movie, you've read the Gospel of Luke. There is no movie, but seen, read, whatever. You know what I'm trying to say. Um, In the Gospel of Luke, uh, he wrote this letter to a man named Theophilus. And he said to Theophilus that he wanted to give an orderly account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And so the book of Luke was Luke trying to answer the question for his friend, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? What has Jesus done? And a a big thrust of the book of Luke is that Jesus is the son of man. He's the promised one to come and take away the sins of the world. And so in the second part of his letter to his friend Theophilus, he's answering the question, what is the church? And so Acts is trying to show us how the work of Jesus who came and established his kingdom, how does that continue? How does that keep going on? And and Jesus, throughout the Gospels, had been saying that he was going to go away, that he was going to go away and he was going to turn over the work of the kingdom, the keys of the kingdom, to his people. And his people were then going to go and they were going to continue this work. And so it was written to keep the church focused on continuing the work of Christ. We exist as a church to extend the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to every corner of our world. But it's easy to make the church primarily about something other than Jesus intended. We can make the church about just simply being good people. We're good moral people looking for a better way to live, that we just want to try to live a good life. Some can make the church about politics, that it could be on either end of the spectrum that's really more about conforming to a political vision than a biblical vision. 
It can be a group of people who just do good things in the community. But we can also make the church as a means to our own spiritual ends. That I'm here to deal with my anxiety. I'm here to deal with my guilt. I'm here to deal with my shame. And some of those aren't bad motivations, but they can't be the main thing. Jesus gives us power for the main thing. In verse uh, 8 of chapter 1, it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And I don't believe the power that God has given us is simply to be good people. I don't think God's desire for us is to be nice people with nice jobs who are a little more kind and moral than our unbelieving neighbors. I think what's remarkable about the book of Acts and the first few hundred years of the church is that they go from a little group of 120 people in an upper room to over 2 million people in 200 years. What happened is that they were empowered, if you look at the end of verse 8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. They were empowered to be witnesses to the power of the gospel. And this group of uneducated social misfits who had no political power, who had no economic power, who had no, no real reason that they should have been the ones to do this, do something that was absolutely, absolutely miraculous. And if we're just being practical, there's an unending list of reasons that they should not have been the ones that God used. And we could say the same thing about Boston. How does a church make it in Boston? How does a church thrive in the city of Boston, you could come up with a list of excuses for why a Bible-believing church would not make it in the city of Boston. You could say Boston's too progressive. It's too post-Christian. It's too expensive to live here. No one will stay. You could say we're too self-reliant as a people in the city. And the temptation, when we look at that list of reasons why the church shouldn't work here, is to tailor the gospel message to make it more palatable to take the teeth out of the message, to blunt the edge of the message, make it easier to digest. Is it possible for a Bible-believing church to thrive in the city of Boston? And I believe it is, because it's happening. If you look at the last 30 years of the history of the church in the city of Boston, there has been a church planting explosion. Church planting is the fruit of evangelism. And this began among mostly non-English-speaking ethnic churches across our city that were going for it and being witnesses of Jesus. The English-speaking church has kind of come on the, the coattails of that movement and that revival, and we are seeing God plant churches faster in our city than any time in recent history. How is this happening? How do we tap into this and continue this? It's not through pragmatism. It's not through changing the message. It's not through making it easier, but it's through the power that God promises through the Holy Spirit. And he tells them in chapter 1, verse 4, he says, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. So They're waiting for the promised Holy Spirit, and we need the same Holy Spirit to pour out upon us to do the work of God here in Boston. The Spirit empowers God's people for God's work. And we're called to wait just like they were called to wait. So so what did they do while they waited? And this is key to understanding the type of church we want to be. They prayed. 
They prayed for the Spirit to come and pour out upon them. One thinker said, it is as the church prays that it receives the Spirit. We receive the Spirit as we pray. Or as John Paul Hill says, that there is no effective witness without the Spirit. And the way to spiritual empowerment is to wait in prayer. To be a church that God uses, to be the church that God wants us to be, City on a Hill must be a praying church. So I want to give you three reasons why we need to be a praying church this morning. Number one, prayer gives unity. Prayer gives unity. We see in verse 12, as Mizzeline read, that they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. And so they had seen Jesus ascend into heaven. He promised the Spirit. He told them to go wait, and they go home. Uh, Olivet is an important place in the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, also called the Mount of Olives. This is where he gave the Sermon on the Mount, his largest section of teaching. This is where he prayed before going to the cross, and now he's ascended into heaven. And it's about a Sabbath day journey away for them to go from Olivet back to Jerusalem. And a Sabbath day journey was just a way of saying about 0.7 miles. Um, it, was kind of, it was kind of just a cultural colloquialism about going about three quarters of a mile because that was the amount of distance you were allowed to walk on a Sabbath day. The Pharisees would get mad at you if you didn't. So it's kind of like when you go out for a walk and your Apple Watch says, do you want to record this walk? That's about the distance that you'd be going on a Sabbath day walk. So they go there, verse 13, uh, and they entered and they went up to the upper room. Now, there's a lot of speculation about what the upper room was or where it was. Some thought maybe it was the same place that the, the, uh, the Lord's Supper happened. Uh, some thought it might have even been Mary's house. But what we do know is it would have been a room large enough to house about 120 people, oftentimes on the top of a roof. And this was a special place where they were waiting for the Lord. little fun fact, uh, the church that we support in Iceland, their name is Lofstafen, which is Icelandic for upper room. So, Fun little fact there. Take that home with you. That was free today. Um, they were expecting to meet the Lord there. And in verse 14, this, this is fascinating to me. It says, all of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. They were there together for one reason, one uniting principle. And in this, they were devoting themselves to prayer because prayer has a way of bringing the church together around a common hope. And this is amazing because of who it brought together. If you look at verse 13, the second half of it, it's pretty amazing who is in this group of people. We have Peter who failed Jesus. The last time we saw Peter, if we were to read the the Bible from one end to to the next, we see Jesus restoring Peter after he failed Jesus. We see James and John and Andrew, the brother of Peter, who are simple fishermen. We see Thomas, who is often called the doubter, Bartholomew, or sometimes he's called Nathaniel, who was a skeptic. Matthew was a tax collector, or he would be a traitor in their time. And we see Philip, and I'm just going to call them the other Judas and the other James, who you don't really see much written about in the New Testament, who are sort of overlooked. You even see Simon, who's a zealot, which would have been about the equivalent of a nationalist today. We see these people from different walks of life and different backgrounds and different perspectives all unified around something. So there's unity for those who disagree, but also unity for those who are often disregarded. The second half of verse 14 says that they were together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. That is not a throwaway verse. 
women were vital to the ministry of Jesus. In fact, we see the New Testament describing often that women were giving very sacrificially, financially, to support the work of Jesus in his ministry. The women were the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And so women who were often treated as second-class citizens in that world, Jesus dignifies and gives value and worth, and they are counted among those who are praying and waiting for the Spirit in Acts chapter 1. We see 120 people in verse 15 who are all gathered together around this one common purpose. This ragtag group of people who had very little in common had the most important thing in common. You couldn't find 11 more different people than the disciples. Some of them didn't see eye to eye. They had very different politics. They were from very different classes, but what united them together, what they united around caused women to find value. What they united around caused Matthew to find something better to be loyal to. It gave Simon a better outlet for his passion It caused Philip and the other Judas and the other James to be seen. It it caused Bartholomew and Thomas' doubts and skepticism to find assurance. It gave James and John and Andrew a greater purpose, and it's also where Peter found grace. Their one accord was the finished work of Christ. What they were gathered around, what they were unified around, what they were devoted to prayer around was what Jesus had done for all of them. And in chapter 1, verse 3, we see what they are witnesses to. It says, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. They were united around the fact that Jesus was once dead, but now he's alive. And I think when we miss that is when our vision of the church gets skewed. If if church is all about us, it's just about what we get out of it, you know, Tim Keller says that the worst way would be if you're a skeptic of the church, if if you you think the church is, is an enemy, then you just look at the church as a narrow way to live. It's not really that much different than the world. It's just, so what's the point? I can, I can be nice to people. I can be nice to my neighbors without the church. I can serve people and, and, you know, through the humane society or or through, through my neighborhood uh, serving group. I can do all those things. If you have the best view of the church, if it's just about people, then the church is just a comfort for me, and it's about dealing with my anxiety and my guilt and my shame. But if the gospel of Jesus Christ is true, then the gospel of Jesus is good for everyone. It's not just good news for me. It's either good news for everyone or it's good news for no one, and that all has to do with whether it's true or not. If Jesus Christ died and rose again and paid for our sins, then it is good news for everyone who will believe. And we have to move from believing it's just about us to being about him and his glory being spread to every person, man, woman, and child in our city. And when we gather around this, when we cling to this, this is why we pray that Jesus was dead, but now he's alive. And if that same power, if God can do that, then he can rescue you from your sins. If he can raise Jesus from the dead, he can free you from addiction. He can, he can unite people. He can heal what's broken. Jesus makes actual what he's already bought for us through the cross. So prayer gives unity, but secondly, prayer gives understanding. We see that they are devoted. They're devoting themselves to prayer, which means that everything that they do is soaked in prayer because they need direction as God's people. I, Howard Marshall, says that the Holy Spirit is the divine gift which empowers and guides 
the church. We need spiritual guidance as God's people. And the early Christian community needed direction in a really bad way because Jesus has ascended. Now, I don't know if you ever felt this way where you felt like, man, if, if, if Jesus was like riding like co-pilot with me, I would never mess up. I'd never sin. I'd never say, I'd never like cuss that person out in traffic. I would never do that because Jesus is with me. Everybody ever, I'm just, okay, I'm the only one, good. Um, Jesus is gone. Judas is dead. He's betrayed Jesus. They're, they're trying to wrap their head around this whole thing. And we see Peter step up. Peter steps up and, and he addresses the people. And this is like so Peter, right? Peter has never met a moment he would not raise to the occasion of. He is a screaming extrovert. Um, my daughter, Lily, is, a, is an extreme extrovert. And we were doing the big move Friday. And I was like, hey, Lily, go talk to the people. Like, because that's just what she does. She loves that. Peter is a natural leader. He's a great spokesperson. But Jesus also gave him responsibility when he told him, feed my sheep. I want you to help them find life. I want you to help them thrive. I want you to help them. And the only way you're going to do this is through understanding that comes through prayer. See, prayer helps us firstly understand God's word. Peter puts and founds his, his plea to the people upon God's word. In verse 15, it says, In those days, after Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of the persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. He wants them to see that everything that is happening can be understood in light of God's word. Why is that so important for that small community? And why is that so important for us? Is that what's happening is not a mistake. That God's word didn't fail. In fact, if you look at verse 20, it says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. That's from Psalm 69. And let another take his office from Psalm 109. These were things predicted long ago. Nothing that is happening here is outside the control of God. And what we do when we pray according to God's word is we begin to understand that God's word is, helps us understand all of life. God's word is unchanging. It never fails. And it didn't fail because of Judas. And it doesn't change in the midst of your circumstances either. Prayer helps us understand all of life in light of God's word. And so when we root our prayer in God's word, we can make a cry very similar to the psalmist who would often say something to the effect of, why is this happening? But when we look at that in light of God's word, we may realize that sometimes it's the consequence of my sin. I messed up. And the reason I'm experiencing this is because I messed up. But other times, when we understand God's word rightly, we understand the world's just broken. The world's just a mess. And because it's a mess, sometimes things happen. When we cry out to God and we feel alone, we remember the scriptures that he never leaves us nor forsakes us, we're reminded in that moment that God is with us. When you have this longing for all things to be made right, you remember the promise that he will make all things right. And for the church, when we think about what God is calling us to do, to be witnesses to the ends of our city and to the ends of the world, we know how this ends. Jesus wins. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Evil will be overcome. He will reign. So I want to challenge you that as you pray, if you, if you, if you're, if you are praying, 
use the Bible to pray. As you're reading the scripture, pray as you read. As you read in Psalm 23 about the goodness and the mercy of God, having it all your days, pray that God would show you his goodness and mercy today. So prayer helps us understand God's word. But secondly, it helps us understand God's will. It it aligns us with God's will. We see this two ways in the passage. We see this in God's hand in Judas's life. Now, did God make Judas sin? No. He freely chose to betray God. But we see that evil cannot even stop the will of God. That God and his sovereign plan is still able to use the free choices of human people And so when you're facing trial or you see evil in the world, you can trust God's will and you don't have to be overwhelmed to the point of despair. The second way we see God's will at play here is in how they chose a replacement for Judas. If you flip over to verse 24, it said, And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. We seek God's wisdom and we seek God's will to know what to do. So when we pray as a church, and we're presented with two really good ideas. We've done, the, we've done the work of making sure it's biblical. We've done the work of making sure that it's wise. It's vital that we pray and trust God's will. And when we, when we trust God's will, we understand that success lies in his hands. I'm so thankful that the future of the church doesn't lie in my abilities. It lies in the hands of Jesus. I'm so glad that God is not surprised. Prayer helps you to say to God, I trust you. You are good and you're enough for me. The third thing that prayer helps us understand is God's work. As we're dependent upon God's will, uh, we enter into God's work. It helps us understand what God is doing in the world and through his people. Why was it so important to replace Judas? Why did they have to kind of fill this job description? It's not because he died. It's not because they had to you know, always have 12 people. But at the beginning of the church in Acts, it was crucial to understand that they had to replace him to have 12. It's through prayerfully seeking God and knowing his word and submitting to his will that they saw God's bigger purpose that these 12 people were representative of a new people. Just like there were 12 tribes of Israel, there were to be 12 apostles signifying a new Israel, a true Israel, a people that were to be witnesses to the world and inviting people from every people to be a new people. That God was doing something new through this group of witnesses that would continue through the work of the church to today. And so part of being a new people is understanding that we have to move from being advocates to witnesses. Praying invites us into God's work and reorients what the church is, that it isn't just something that you go to. It's not just something that you enjoy, but it's something that is a means to express the love of Jesus to others. I really hope that you personally are experiencing the love of Christ. I I really hope that you're personally experiencing the removal of guilt and the removal of shame and, and you're experiencing forgiveness I pray the city of the hill has been a place of blessing to you. It's been a place of healing. It's been a place of friendship and mercy and grace and that you've experienced the gospel tangibly. I really want that for all of us, but I want it to be more than that. Being an advocate is to say, here is what God has done for me. Here's what Jesus has done for me. 
being a witness is saying, here's what he can do for you. It's a shift in perspective. It's not just about what he's done for me, but the good news is so good that I want other people to know about it. I want other people to experience it. And so as we pray, we're increasingly called to reorient our lives around Jesus and his mission. And when we pray as people according to his word, seeking his will, joining in his work, we desire to extend his glory. And this is why this is so important in choosing this new disciple. How did they know? How did they know that God was at work here? Well, verse 22, they lay out all the qualifications that they needed for this new apostle. Um, He needed to be someone who'd been there from the beginning, who had witnessed the resurrection. And you have two really good options. Verse 23, it says, and they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice. Anybody growing up had that one friend, you didn't really know their real name. They just had a nickname. It was like, it was like you know, I don't know, Tubby or Bubba or whatever. I don't know. You called him, you don't know why you called him that. Most of my friends going through high school did not know my first name. They just knew my last name. I was always called by my last name. So you got that guy and then you have Matthias, which sounds like very, you know, kind of, I don't know, it's kind of a letdown after three names for the other guy. How did they know it was him? Because the Lord was at work in it. They trusted that God's wisdom was better than their wisdom, and because of that, this was the best means to get the gospel out. Prayer helps us understand what God is doing. Thirdly, prayer gives unction. Now, unction is kind of a weird word, but it's an old word, but I needed a third U for the alliteration to work. Um, Unction just means anointing with the Spirit. It means an anointing with the Spirit. We pray for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And when I'm talking about this idea of being witnesses, this is not just coming down to their collective abilities. It's not just coming down to Peter's boldness and his willingness to speak. This was something that went beyond skill, that required the empowering of God. If we're going to be witnesses to our friends and neighbors in the city of Boston, we need an anointing of the Holy Spirit. And this is different than the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Every person who has trusted Jesus has the Holy Spirit. If you've trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, the Spirit of God lives within you to help you grow to be more like Christ, to help you fight sin, to point you again and again to Jesus. John 16 tells us this, He will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the Spirit exists to help us know and see Jesus, to grow in our walk with Jesus. And so for them, they're waiting for the Spirit to come the first time. But for us, we're waiting for God to pour out the Spirit that we already have in a unique way to empower us for His work. Now, what does that look like? Ephesians 3, verses 16 and 17. That according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. It's an outpouring of something you already have. It's an experience of the Spirit that goes beyond just the daily walking with God, but God empowering us for His work. And so I'm going to take this illustration from John Piper, who took it from Martin Lloyd-Jones, because it's such a good illustration. I want to borrow this illustration to make it my own this morning. You know, when my kids were little, we would be walking along, and, and we, they'd 
they just kind of bump into me and their hands would almost just automatically reach up to grab mine. All of them did this. They, their hands would reach up and sometimes they still do. We'd be walking along and it's almost like they just automatically reach over and grab my hand because they know that I'm their dad and I love them, that they're safe. And so you know, they're happy, they're loved, they're known. That's the everyday Christian life. The everyday Christian life is the spirit reminding you that you're known, you're safe, you're loved. You know the gospel, you know it's true. But when my kids were little, there were times where something would just come over me and I'd gather them up in my arms and bear hug them and smother their little faces with kisses. And I'd just say, I love you so much. And they would be startled by this expression of love. And sometimes I would even say like, dad, like, what are you doing? Especially as they got a little bit older and like getting toward their friends saying, it's like, dad, what are you doing? Um, I'd say, because you're my daughter and I love you. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's an acute experience of what you've already received. It's to be overwhelmed by the love of God for you in such a way that it overflows out of your life that you can do nothing but glorify God in the world. That it's the love of God overflowing out of you that you're full to the brim with the love of God, that he strengthens you with power in your inmost being, that you're rooted and grounded in love. And here's the thing about that. You can't manufacture that, but you can long for it. We, we can't make it happen, but we can ask for it. And, and look, there are lots of smart people at City on a Hill. We, we have good systems. We have great teams that serve. We have good theology, we have good teaching, we've got great music. And what all those things can do is lull us into prayerlessness. Because we think we can do this on our own instead of an, out of the overflow and the outpouring of the overwhelming love of God for us. And as I think about the days ahead, when I think about the type of church that we want to be, when I think about what God wants to do through City on a Hill, we have to devote ourselves to prayer. We have to be overwhelmed by the love of Jesus for us. Because you can mistake busyness for grace. You can mistake activity for power. And I want nothing more for our church than for his spirit to be poured out upon us. And that's going to come through prayer. And what's incredible is this is a prayer that God desires to answer. As we look at Acts chapter 2 next week, we're going to see what happens when the spirit of God pours himself out on a people. I want City on a Hill to be a prayerful people, a prayerful people united around Jesus, seeking his will, submitting to his word, empowered for his work. And this only comes when we prayerfully seek the pouring out of his spirit to be overwhelmed with the love of Jesus. So as we, just a couple of takeaways as we close. Number one is, have you received that free gift of love and salvation? Have you submitted to Christ? Have you received his forgiveness personally? Have you made this your own? Is this personal? And then secondly, the second takeaway is I just want to challenge you to pray. I want to challenge us to be a prayerful people. And not just this week, but I want to give you a challenge this week. I want you to commit to pray for nine minutes. And that's really like a specific number. But I want you to pray for three minutes each for three different categories. Number one, I want you to pray for yourself. I want you to pray that you would be overwhelmed with the love of God, that you would be filled with the Spirit. 
That being filled with the Spirit is not just some sort of like magical, spiritual power, but it's being overwhelmed with the love of God that you can't help but go and glorify Him. Pray for yourself. Take another three minutes to pray for the church. Pray that God would overwhelm us with his love and empower us for the ministry that's ahead of us. And then thirdly, pray for our city. Pray that our city would be reached through churches like City on a Hill who are being filled with the Holy Spirit, a group of people overwhelmed with the love that Jesus has shown us that we can't help but extend it to our friends and neighbors. Let's be a church that prays for this. Let's pray. 